It's Rainforest Mind with me, Casper Thompson. Today the sun is shining, it's the middle of February, uh, and it feels like early summer. So whilst part of me can enjoy this beautiful weather, another part of me is aware that it is a sign of the climate breakdown which causes extreme weather events all over the world leading to loss of habitat, loss of life of humans and non-humans, rising sea levels and so on and so forth. So it is the silver lining of a very dark cloud. Um, I suppose partly I'm thinking about climate change just because it's happening, partly because I'm facilitating Buddhist Action Month this year, a initiative to encourage Buddhists to take action during the month of June. And this year's theme is climate change. For more information on that, check out the Network of Buddhist Organisations website at nbo.org.uk and look under what we do in the menus. I'm also thinking about climate change because it's one of the topics that came up with my teacher, Dharma Vidya David Brazier, when I spoke to him for today's episode of Rainforest Mind. We talked about Buddhist psychology, which he's been teaching for a long time, and he's uh, currently in Italy where he's been teaching some Buddhist psychology workshops. We talked about faith, suffering, and about um, being in the natural world, and about climate change. Dharma Vidya has written many books. He's got a new book coming out in March about Dogen's chapter Genjo Koan, which is called The Dark Side of the Mirror, Forgetting the Self in Dogen's Genjo Koan. That's by Windhorse, coming out in March, and I'm sure available from the places you usually get your books from. And I, I, read, uh, I read the manuscript, and it's very good. I really recommend it. I'm also putting together a collection of Dhammavidya's teachings which will be produced in a book and we haven't uh, got a title for that yet but keep an eye out uh, for new books by David Brazier. One of the things we first talk about is encounter, how important encounter is in Buddhist psychology and Buddhist training, the transmission of inspiration. It made me think of the first time I saw Dharma Vidya teaching about Buddhist, uh, pure Buddhism. I, I arrived at the Buddhist house in Nabra in October 2006 for a, I think I'd planned to stay five days or six, I don't know for teachings on Buddhist psychology and I ended up staying for a couple of extra days and then I had to go home because I'd got work the next day but on the Monday evening of that week Dhammavidya gave a teaching about the Lotus Sutra as part of a sutra study class that was done for people living in the community and local people it was in the living room we were all sat there on our comfy chairs I remember to this day I, I can still see which corner of the room Dhammavidya was sitting in. And the teaching was on the chapter, The Stuttering Bodhisattva, Gadgadasvara, whose uh, name in Sanskrit, Gadgadasvara, has got a bit of a stutter to it. And the vow this 
Bodhisattva made was to appear in whatever form was required to enlighten the person in front of him or or her. And uh, even this chipped mug, Dharmavidya said, holding up his mug of tea, could be the Bodhisattva coming to enlighten you. He had a twinkle in his eye when he said it. And as he talked, two or three different things were going on for me. One, I could see that he was deeply rooted in his own faith. He was speaking from experience, not just intellectually, although he was clearly very clever intellectually. Two is that I recognised from my own spiritual experiences something of what he was talking about. And I experienced him meeting me and I felt recognised. So we had an encounter, it was a wordless encounter, he was teaching and I was listening and other people were listening. But I felt that my experience of those spiritual experiences was recognised by him. And I've never asked him about that. (laughs) That was my experience though. And I suppose the other... The, you know, the content of it was also very inspiring that actually the whole world might be there to enlighten us, even the simple object that's in front of us right now. And I came away from that meeting thinking, oh, I found my teacher. I'd been looking for a Buddhist teacher for a while in the Buddhist community, um, and something clicked that day. And two weeks later, I moved in as a a trainee Buddhist priest. And I was there for about four years. Anyway, this is a real treat for me to have nearly an hour of Dharmavidya's time just to talk to him and ask him questions about Buddhist psychology, and I'm sure you will enjoy it as well. Speaking of Buddhist psychology, I suppose I should mention that um, I've got spaces for real clients and also Skype clients or Zoom, whatever software you want to use, wherever you are in the world. So do check out my website at kasperthompson.co.uk. That's K-A-S-P-A-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.co.uk. If you want to learn more about Dharma Vidya of David Brazier, I call him Dharma Vidya, that's his Buddhist name, but he writes under his uh, given name, David Brazier. You can check out his website, which is uh, includes teachings, includes blog posts. You can post your own questions and thoughts. That's at eleusis.ning.com, which is E-L-E-U-S-I-S dot N-I-N-G.com. I'll put these links all up on the, um, the About page of the episode as well, so you can find clickable links there. Anyway... Let's just enjoy the conversation. Maybe just um, start by saying where you are at the moment. Give us a picture of where you are on your travels. Oh, on my travels? Well, I'm, I'm in Italy at the moment. Um, I've been doing some teaching, mostly Buddhist psychology, some of Pure Land Buddhism. Uh, in uh, Torino and Milano, Turin and Milan, here in in the north of Italy. Great. And then I'll be going back to France, and uh, later in the spring, 
I'll be giving some teachings in the Low Countries, in Belgium and in Netherlands. So you've been teaching Buddhist psychology for probably, well, teaching psychotherapists for more than 30 years and Buddhist psychology for a long time. Yeah. Do you think that what, I'm just wondering if what you teach has changed or if you notice that you're teaching different things compared to, say, 10 years ago when I was starting the therapy training with you? I, I think compared with 10 years ago, um, I wouldn't say anything fundamental has changed. Um, I, I may have um, expanded the range somewhat. Uh, recently, I've been quite interested in questions like obsession and addiction and so on. Mm. Uh, this is talking about Buddhist psychology. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the fundamental principles um, have stood the test of time, as they say. Um, it, it's largely based on a particular interpretation of, of the texts, um, a way of uh, taking the, the original Buddhist teachings and looking at them as psychology, uh, yeah. treating the Buddha as a psychologist. Um, so I, I, I think that um, the ideas that were developed 10 years or more ago uh, have, have proved to be quite reliable. Mm. So for people listening who aren't familiar with Buddhist psychology, I realise I'm about to ask you <laughs> a big ask. <laughs> What's the, the, back, <laughs> yeah, the, back, the back of the postcard um, <laughs> version? Well, the the you know the Buddha gave teachings mostly. Occasionally, the Buddha gave a, a set piece lecture on something, but but mostly, most of what we have records of the Buddha's teachings are, are conversations. There, somebody comes along, asks a question, and and the Buddha responds to it. And clearly, some important interaction happened uh, between those two people. And and of course, the the um, the, the, the pity of it, the shame of it, is, is that they didn't have video because <laughs> mm. um, all we've got is, is at best, um, is transcript. Uh, so we have the content of what was said. Uh, but clearly a lot went on between the two people because people came away from these meetings inspired, uh, their lives changed, um, and... and um, this was clearly not just from the content in the sense that you could read the content in a book. It's not just a transfer of information. There's something else that happens. Exactly. It's not, not just information. It's not just getting the right theory, getting the right idea. Uh, something inspired people. So this, this, in a way, is the first point, is that when people think about Buddhism, they think about meditation. And you say Buddhism to a Western person, they immediately think, oh, meditation. Maybe nowadays they think mindfulness as well, possibly. Mm. <clears throat> but um, the, the, when you look at the texts, the thing that, that stands out most is encounter, uh, is, is meetings, is, is the impact of one person on another person. And, and these meetings where one person meets another person, somebody meets the Buddha or perhaps meets one of the leading disciples, and then comes away considerably changed after quite a short interaction, 
in in a sense, this is psychotherapy. Uh, mm-hmm. and any interpersonal interaction in which one person comes away changed in a positive way is psychotherapy. It might not be psych- might not look at all like psychotherapy as we practice it nowadays, but in terms of a general definition, you'd have to say it's something of the kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so these um, encounters, which not only are there in the original text between the Buddha and the people who came to see him, but also in the, in, in the history, is the history of the Zen tradition, the history of the Kajupa tradition, and so on. It's all about meetings between important people. And, and it's usually in such a meeting, or as a very soon afterwards result of such a meeting, that people have experiences that we call illumination or enlightenment or liberation or something of that kind uh, that, that radically change their lives and for which they then feel grateful um, for the rest of their days. And, and in a sense, it's that um, spirit of uh, liberation and the, the associated uh, gratitude uh, that has been transmitted, that's been passed on, passed down through through the ages, uh, that is really the backbone of Buddhism. Buddhism is not just a set of techniques, uh, like sort of self-help methods, as you might say. Hmm. Useful as some of those might be for, for limited purposes. It, it, it's, a, it's an inspiration. It's a spirit, if you like, uh, that, that has inspired individuals has inspired whole civilizations, uh, has, has changed the planet uh, in, in, in quite considerable ways. So, so one of the basic things is, is this um, business of encounter. And what sort of an encounter is it? It's, it's the kind of encounter in which um, at least one of the people involved, uh, what can we say, is, is not... Um, uh, is, is not self-invested, is, is, is not on a trip, is, is, is not coming from a place of conceit. Uh, Could you give an example maybe of a time when you've had an encounter with a teacher that was transformative or, or something that you've witnessed to put some flesh on the bones? The one that immediately comes to mind is one I talked about in my book Zen Therapy, mm. um, where... One of the very first encounters I had with with my own Zen teacher, Um, if you had a transcript of it, you you would think, really, um, well, well, what happened there? What was that about? Um, Because essentially um, all that happened was that we observed what was the case in that moment. Mm. Uh, but somehow it was liberating. And I, I suppose it was liberating because I went into it with such expectations and actually met something very honest and, in a certain sense, ordinary. Um, so your ex- what were your expectations? Well, I'm going to see the great Zen master. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and also... Um, uh, I, I've got a sort of ambition, you know, I, mm. I, I'm hoping I can get some of this magic for me um, yeah. that, that will kind of enhance me and, and 
ultimately make me into a, a great Zen master or, or something of the kind. Mm. You know, I, I've got hopes and ambitions. Yeah. And um, actually, we, we met as two human beings in, in, in a very ordinary sort of way. But then ordinary isn't quite the right word. You know, I, I'm now starting to think about another encounter where I met Min Chao, who was the head of a Buddhist college in Vietnam. And I only spent 20 minutes with him. And, and he was seriously handicapped, um, confined to a wheelchair. He, he had a great difficulty in speaking at all. And um, he spoke some English, but it wasn't his native tongue. Um, yet there was something just about his his presence, his um, total acceptance of, of, of his own um, situation, uh, coupled with what I knew about the work that he'd done in, in bringing together different groups of Buddhists to form this, this college, which was very um, inspiring, uh, creating harmony between different groups and um, building uh, the, the whole uh, institution, if you like, on the basis of very sound values. Um, this, coupled with meeting him in his wheelchair uh, and him speaking very slowly, very uh, unflappable, if you like, uh, had a great impact on me. And I, I still remember him, one of the things he said was, um, all Buddhism good, he said. <laughs> and this, this, these words sort of impacted on me um, mm. in a way that goes way beyond the, the meaning of the words, way beyond the, um, the content uh, you can debate the content and, and, and so on and, and have all sorts of intellectual ideas about it, but that's not really the point. It was the, just in three words he managed to sum up his whole life's work mm. and um, and convey something of the spirit of that to me so that I, even in a certain, certain way, I took that away with me, you see. Yeah. Well, even as you were sort of echoing those words to me, I had a sense of something, this the sort of solidity of him, the, the stillness, the groundedness, the sort of like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> yes, a, a great groundedness, a great um, inner strength, You, I suppose you would say, um, which had come out of... You know, it was Vietnam, for goodness sake. Yeah. And he, he'd been through the most awful times. Um, there was a great depth of character there. So something about finding a sense of ease or grace in the midst of very difficult circumstances. I think that's right, yes. I, I think you, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to imagine somebody having this kind of... Um, liberative experience or depth of character who's had a, a, a completely easy life. Um, there's something about adversity that contributes to it in, in an important way. 
I think it's, it's kind of the, the combination of adversity yet inspiration. Um, the fact of being able to, to rise above the difficulty uh, yeah. is, is part of the essence of it. Yeah, which makes me think of Puran Buddhism, that there's a sense of trusting something and also acknowledging the difficulty Yes, of those it, things it, it, together. It, yes, exactly. The two have to go together. So you you said with uh, Jiu Kenit Roshi, a Zen teacher, there was something just about the ordinary, like actually coming into her presence, you were able to let go of something. People would say, yes, people would say of her that um, if you just met her in ordinary circumstances, she was just like anybody else. But when times got difficult or and everybody else was getting into a flap or um, getting angry or getting depressed or at those times she became more calm, more steady, more reliable and a certain strength shone through. Uh, while everybody else was losing it. Hmm. So so it was kind of, in a way, going in the opposite direction. Um, yeah, she wouldn't buy into the drama. No, she didn't buy into the drama because it, 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 didn't, um, it didn't hook into um, ego needs, I suppose you would say, psychologically. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so in a sense, maybe... She- less charismatic than some teachers if that sense of oh, she's just ordinary and yet something special in the fact that yes. she hasn't got the, the loops that things hook into. Yes, le- maybe less charismatic, but certainly extraordinary. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she had gone to Japan just after the war as, as a woman uh, in a virtually all-male monastery full mm. of many of the monks had, had a few years earlier been in the Japanese armed forces um, fighting against these um, uh, Western barbarians that she was one of. <laughs> yeah. And in a very patriarchal society as yes, well. Yes, yeah. very, a lot of um, macho attitudes and yeah. so on. Um, but she did it with great um, faith. You know, she, she, mm. she, she'd been inspired by her own teacher uh, and was willing to put her life on the line. And um, that's, you know, what is life about? Yeah. If... Um, in our modern society, yes, our modern society, we try to be comfortable all the time, but but it doesn't um, doesn't run very deep. No, and that, so there's there's something about knowing what life is really like, which isn't comfortable, and not worrying too much about needing to insulate yourself from that. Yes, alongside no. something that inspires you. Knowing that ultimately you can't, you can't insulate yeah. yourself from it, even even though. So much of our insulated life is a kind of pretense. It's a pose. It's um, it, it's artificial. Short termism. Yes. Yes. Sort of. We think it sort of works for a little while and then fails, <laughs> That's which right. which might sound quite disheartening, and yet. Yeah. 
somehow the other side of that there's something that that isn't yes well well that that's buddhism isn't it buddhism starts with an acknowledgement of dukkha a uh, facing up to the existential reality uh, of our situation yeah so we've talked about encan- how important encounter is to psychotherapy and I suppose to Buddhist training as well by implication. Yes. Yes, I wouldn't see a great difference between them, really. Um, there are differences of um, topic, differences of degree in some ways, but essentially they're the same thing. Uh, anything that um, is genuinely constructive and helpful for a person's development is and advance along their spiritual path. Yeah. It seems like a lot of what I do as a psychotherapist is um, create help, helping the client create a space where we can witness um, their woundedness in a way that hasn't happened before. <clears throat> Yes. I wonder how you would frame that in terms of Buddhist psychology. Well, the, 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 as, I, as I would interpret the, um, the noble truths, the truths for noble ones, um, the path, in Buddhism we say the eightfold path, uh, emerges from how you respond to this existential reality that we find Mm. ourselves in and it's in the nature of this reality as as is clear from the philosophies of people like Nagarjuna and so on uh, that you cannot here have absolute knowledge it's 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 like uh, you know we say the fish can't really understand the water because it's in it and 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 we're in it We're, we're here in the midst of our existential reality so inevitably uh, to to um, live here uh, fully constructively positively one needs a lot of faith uh, the and modern people of course have, have lost a lot of this uh, traditional societies had ways of organizing people's faith giving them uh, a set of concepts, a set of images, a set of myths, stories, whatever it might be, uh, that, that help to keep their faith alive. We, we've lost a lot of this. We, we have faith in some things. We have faith in technology. Um, we have faith in science. Um, faith but, in entertainment. <laughs> faith in entertainment, that's right. Money <laughs> and so on. <laughs> but it, these are, these things are not terribly reliable things to place your faith in um we the the great religions give you a sense of uh, something more enduring than that something that transcends this uh, immediate situation uh they talk about not in a sense you could say they don't just talk about the here and now they talk about eternity Hmm. Uh, they talk about the bigger picture um, each of them has a different way of talking about it. Of course, we're human. Uh, we're not going to have the, the absolute answers. 
but still we we have to have something uh, in order to make our lives meaningful, to make our lives coherent. And, and that something has to be something that enables us to transcend the difficulties of the immediate situation. Um, when the Nazis come and knock on your door and take you away to a camp or something, um, it, it's, it's no good relying upon uh, what can I do to get a short-term result. Well, nothing really. You're, you're a complete victim. But if, if you have a faith that transcends all this, uh, then it, it's, it's, it's very different from just being at sea, as it were. And, and this is clear from the, the studies of people who did or did not survive the, the Nazi concentration camps. Uh, that those who had some sort of faith, it didn't really matter in a way whether they were Jews or Jehovah's Witnesses or um, Catholics or, or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. They they survived and came out of it as, as when those who did survive, um, stronger characters, whereas the ones who didn't have such faith succumbed quite quickly, uh, mm-hmm. fell into despair and, and died. What's striking to me about those stories, people like Viktor Frankl, is that there's a long there is there's not a minimizing of the suffering that they experienced or that other people experienced. So there isn't this sort of spiritual bypassing or just sort of going up into heaven and splitting off from the reality of what was happening around them. Absolutely. Uh, It's more a matter of more deeply and fully recognizing it. Mm. I think this is why Buddhism starts with with dukkha. Dukkha is a truth for noble ones. Um, If if you don't um, face it and recognize it, you don't even have the foundation, as it were. Yeah. And it seems, as I said, a lot of the work that I do with clients actually is just create my faith encouraging their faith so that we can go okay how do we look at how yes. do we look at what is actually happening well and you have faith in a bigger in a bigger process that yeah. <coughs> their their suffering plays a part in something bigger and um we we don't have an immediate um concept for that biggerness if you like but um the person's life is embedded in the whole in the in the larger picture in in the larger time frame Mm. and if you have faith in in that process you know humanistic psychologists say the same thing carl rogers says trust the process you know essentially it's the same thing um there's a process going on so so when i i'm doing therapy i have the assumption that this person whether they know it or not whether they um, have any thoughts about it or not is on some sort of spiritual path mm-hmm. and and not necessarily in identical place to me uh, they may be climbing up the opposite <coughs> side of the mountain <laughs> so yeah so while I'm going west up my side, they might be going east up their side. 
Yeah, still, some people it feels like they're on a different mountain altogether. <laughs> possibly even a different mountain. Um, but still, they, they are on a spiritual path. And, and my job is to uh, walk with them, uh, assist sometimes um, by being there, give some courage sometimes, uh, be philosophical sometimes. Um, th- these, these are the things that Buddhism advocates, love, compassion, um, sympathetic joy, rejoicing at their successes, equanimity, being solid when things go badly, uh, when they have a setback, when, and mm. so on. You, you need to be a rock uh, to be there with them. Mm. So it sounds like these two things together are the sort of core of Buddhist psychology, the idea of encounter and your understanding of the Four Noble truths which includes recognizing suffering and also recognizing that that there is something bigger than that or beyond that or that includes that and allows for liberation in the midst of it it all goes together yes i i think the buddhist teachings are all of a piece mm-hmm. um you you take different um teachings different doctrines if you like Um, They all say the same thing. Uh, They say it in a different way. It's packaged differently for different people with different needs, different personalities, and so on. But this um, awareness of something, of a a bigger picture, is very important. The the faith that transcends particular concepts uh, is, is the bedrock, if you like. And Keeping that in mind is the original meaning of mindfulness. Mm. Uh, mindfulness originally meant to, to keep that, uh, that faith in mind. And once that is established, then that provides uh, a basis for, for the rest. Uh, this is why mindfulness is the first of the seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, then the second factor is investigation of Dharma. So you in, it's like to investigate the truth. Mm. Uh, if, if you have that faith established and it's in your mind, in your heart, then you can safely investigate the truth. Uh, if you don't have that established, then when you investigate the truth, you'll probably scare yourself to death. Yeah, it can be overwhelming. <laughs> You'd be overwhelmed, that's right. Yeah. Uh, facing the existential reality when you've got no no basis of faith to carry you through it uh, is is quite risky. So, yeah. well, it's terrifying. So if all there is yes. is the suffering that I'm experiencing, then you then know, you just become should... hopelessly depressed. Yeah. And um, yes, and then and this is why, without that faith, we build a society based on distraction and um, entertainment and posing uh, because it's, it's, it's too difficult to face the reality. But if, you, but if you have that, if you have mindfulness in that original sense, heartfulness, if you like, um, then, then you've got a basis. Then you can investigate uh, what is true. You can face up to it. You can see your bamboo nature. Uh, you can see the limitations. You can see the... Um, the state of the world 
Mm. And, and from there, you then, that then, uh, if you do it that way, then uh, you finish up with energy and joy and love and compassion. And um, this, is the, this is the blossoming of the spiritual life. One of the things that supports me to have faith in the bigger picture is going up on the hills and seeing a much bigger sky or seeing some life unfolding that is not only nothing to do with me, but also really nothing to do with the human race at all, whether it's a little spider crawling up a web or a uh, a kite in the sky. And I wonder if I'm remembering how beautiful the space is where you live in France, whether there's whether you recognize whether that's something that supports you or whether or whether there's other things that support your faith in the bigger picture yes this, this is absolutely right um, we we've lost a sense of, of the sacredness of the land uh, and, and of course we we're, we're now plunged into the middle of a, the most awful ecological crisis mm. um <clears throat> But the in, in the, the ancients, as you might say, uh, had a sense of, of the sacredness of the land, and they celebrated it in in a great variety of ways. Uh, people had much more a sense of uh, what we, I suppose what was technically called vitalism, but that, that in a certain sense everything is alive. The rocks are alive. Uh, there is a spirit uh, in in everything. And um, when you walk around the land at, um, uh, at my place in, in France, um, one has this, I have this sense of moving from one sacred domain to another. Uh, and this is extremely refreshing and um, inspiring. Uh, and, and, of course, different... Um, See, the ancient religions were mostly, um, um, they had many gods. They, did, they weren't monotheisms, they were polytheisms. Mm. And, and this means that they had many dimensions, so that you're in touch with all the different energies that are part of life. Um, the, the, the danger of, of the sort of more monotheistic approach is, is that you isolate certain qualities as being good and by implication then imply that um, a lot of life should be discarded as being bad, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the, the, the more polytheistic approach uh, meant there was a place for everything. And, and I think that is, is in accord with Buddhism. Buddhism is not about uh, distinguishing good from bad and getting rid of the bad. Uh, it's about seeing that everything has its place, uh, mm. that uh, there is a sort of spiritual ecology, if you like. Uh, all your different passions, your, your anger, your um, jealousy and so on, you might think, oh, I've got to get rid of those. Uh, but that's a kind of puritanical sort of approach. <clears throat> All these energies are there for some reason. Mm. Uh, nature gave them to us for some reason. And uh, they need to be understood wisely uh, and then ultimately um, respected and celebrated. 
and the, and the different um, gods and goddesses and so on of, of the ancient religions gave people a way of doing that. They, they gave them a, a, a big picture within which these uh, different passions, different dimensions of life all had their part, all had their part to play. It makes me think of the, um, or two things. One is the model of internal family systems that I've been studying recently, where essentially as an energy arises, you you sort of investigate it. And at some point um, you discover the sort of, if there's some trauma invested in the energy and the trauma is released and then it's not that that energy disappears or that that part goes away, but it finds its place somehow. There's something about healing the wound that allows that energy to become a supportive uh, element, something that enables you to walk along the path rather than something that holds you back from walking along the path. Yes, 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 that's right. And the other thing it made me think of when you were talking about you know, cut how in a perhaps in a monotheistic religion we allow certain things and don't allow others. Is I've been reading a book of Mary Oliver essays, uh, Mary Oliver, the poet who died a couple of months ago, and in one of them she talks about. She often talks about going into the natural world. In one of them she talks about going into the natural world, finding some turtle eggs bringing them home and scrambling them and having them for breakfast and there was something shocking about that for me oh it's turtles you're not you know you're not supposed to interfere with them (laughs) but there was but she was doing it in this almost religious devotional for her it was a devotional act of um deeply entering the sort of eat and be eaten nature of life something yes. about yeah so that it felt like yes that from one point of view this is shocking and from another point of view there's something deeply sacred about what she was doing yes well you know the the um a lot of the the ecological problem we have is is simply because we've become so vastly numerous. So the things we do, which might be quite natural if there were only a million of us on the planet, um, become extremely destructive when when they're being done by such vast numbers of people that they destroy whole other species and, and bring about general disaster. Yeah, human beings as a natural disaster, as... Um... Someone I know once put it. You know, we, we've been tremendously successful in, in keeping um, nearly all of us alive in a way that no other species manages. And in a certain way, this this is this is wonderful and, and marvellous. But um, as with everything else, uh, it has a shadow side. Yeah. And um, consequently, we're in some danger now. So, and I wonder how the... How the... I suppose we've been talking about faith, how the place of faith or trusting in something bigger might 
impact or or if if there's this, if there's a sort of medicine in faith for the ecological crisis well on, on the one hand you do everything it gives you the inspiration to do everything you can at the same time um it gives you some solidity <coughs> to 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 um maintain some sort of equanimity um when things sometimes look very very bad, very black, very threatening, uh, because who knows what is in the longer term? Um, mm. Who knows what is going to come? Yeah. You, you can only do what you can do um, from where you are at the time. Yeah, you talked about the example of um, people going into concentration camps, and I suppose you can, you might view the ecological crisis as a sort of concentration camp that we've put ourselves in or put the whole world in it may be that that this um, civilization that we're in the midst of at the moment may completely collapse in a certain way we're we're very fortunate people at the moment we live longer than most human beings have done Um, we enjoy better food better um, conditions in many ways than, than human beings have done but in the process, we're using up an awful lot of, of resources, some of which are not easy to replace. Yeah. And when we look at history, we see that many other civilizations have come and gone. And, and they've often gone as a result of ecological problems of one sort or another. And, and ours are no less. So we, we, we can't be um, blindly optimistic that, that uh, our good fortune is just going to go on and on and on. Um, but whether things are progressing or regressing, getting better, getting worse, the, the person who has a, a spiritual faith, a religious faith, uh, really relates to something that's longer term, that's bigger, that's more important, or you could say more profound. Is I suppose it's better to say deeper, really. Um, so that <clears throat> whether it goes well or whether it goes badly, well, that's how it is. But it makes no difference to one's faith, to one's um, foundation. Mm, so perhaps it's about the ecology of the whole universe or the ecology of eternity rather than about the ecology of this particular chunk of Yes, or time. even this particular planet. I mean, yeah. in, in, in scale of things, this planet is just a dot. Uh, it's just a smidgen of dust in, in, the, <laughs> in the greater yeah. scheme of things. And, and so what, what is the meaning of us? It, we shall never know in, in, in a sort of simple intellectual sense. You... you it, it, it's um, extremely arrogant to think that we're going to intellectually understand all this and know all of the laws of the universe and make ourselves into gods. That's not going to happen. There's something quite complex in this, isn't there? Because it's faith, faith enables us to, on the one hand, be with the, the extreme suffering of humans and non-human animals and the ecological system and and grieve for that whilst also offering a sort of spaciousness and a trust in uh, something much much bigger which is isn't really even to do with my personal survival and may not even be to do with 
the human race's survival, but but goes beyond. Yes, that, that's all very very correct. Um, spaciousness is is a very good term uh, for it, and that sense that. Um, in, in a certain way, my particular survival doesn't really matter. Mm. Uh, the, the, there's something much more important than that. Uh, the, the ego is, is built largely on the idea that my survival uh, is more important than everything else. But looked at objectively, that, that's absurd. Mm. So we sort of finished where we started in a, in a sense that there is... Um, there's these two different aspects. There is there is suffering, which we can sort of go, well, yes, there is suffering. And yet we don't fall into saying, oh, well, even, I suppose, oh, I'm muddling my words up. When you said, well, I don't really matter, it's that point where some people might go, oh, okay, so it's just nihilistic, nihilistic. Yes. But it isn't. it doesn't stop there. It's, oh... I don't really matter, but there is something. Well, it's the idea that I'm what matters that that inhibits one from uh, any kind of commitment because it's what leads you to be playing safe all the time. Yeah. And um, whereas faith enables you... um, One member of our group, uh, I remember on one occasion, said... um, uh, Faith is what changes the traffic lights from amber to green, he said. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's what enables you to get going. Yeah. Um, where, whereas otherwise you, you remain in a dither, you know, constantly hesitating about how to get results, how to be popular, how to be safe, how to uh, hedge everything around in a way that gives you some guarantees that the universe is never actually going to provide. And I suppose my experience is not that I was one thing and now I'm the other, but I'm still, I'm both of those things still. There is faith which enables the light to go on green and then sometimes it flicks back to amber or red again. Yes, of course, of course, because we're human. And um, faith doesn't mean that one doesn't have doubts and one doesn't have hesitations. Of course one does. Um, we're, we're, we're human beings and, and it, it's that recognition of our own nature our own weakness our own vulnerability uh, that is the foundation of compassion mm-hmm. it's, it's only when we recognize it in ourselves that we can recognize it in others and uh, so, so investigating one's shadow as you might say psychologically uh, very important because uh, then you, you you understand how it is for other people. You, you you can't be compassionate really from a position of superiority, um, only from a position of fellow feeling. Mm. Uh, when, you, when you have that, um, when you investigate, when you have the faith to investigate the truth of yourself, you discover ah human nature. And uh, <laughs> when you've discovered it, um, you realize, of course, that it's the same for everybody else. Mm. They, they, they have it in their own fashion, in their own way, and, and they've done their own projects and their own experiments to cope with its problems. 
but uh, essentially it's, it's the same and that's what enables compassion compassion is, is the, the, the the wish that they um, get through the, those obstacles that they have created for themselves and progress on on their spiritual path but it, it, it takes form it becomes palpable it becomes inspiring uh, when one has realized one's own nature and that only happens when one has enough trust to do the investigation as you said right at the beginning exactly so exactly. all through this conversation we've been touching on these two different elements of buddhist psychology of buddhist training of life really that trust in something else and investigation into how it is to be human to be suffering yes yes that's right that's right that that's what um takes you beyond the ego well thank you very much for your time this morning i think that's um... a pleasure a pleasure <laughs> Wasn't that a great conversation with Dharma Vidya? As I said, if you're interested in any of his books, he writes under his given name of David Brazier. The website is at eleusis.ning.com, E-L-E-U-S-I-S.N-I-N-G.com. My website is casperthompson.co.uk. Uh, leave me a review on Stitcher or iTunes, a good one. If it's a bad review, then just, just keep it to yourself. Just think it in your own mind. <laughs> or drop me uh, a comment on the website or an email or something. Love to hear from listeners. That's it for today. I've got a couple of really interesting guests lined up for the next episode, so keep an eye out for those. Do subs- If you subscribe on Stitcher, or iTunes, and of course you will see the new episodes as soon as they are uploaded. In the meantime, uh, look after yourselves and each other. (laughs) Who was it that used to say something like that? What was that talk show? I don't know. Anyway, you get the gist of it. Until next time, I've been Casper Thompson, and this has been Rainforest Mind. (laughs) 